for the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Tonight on the show, I am super excited to welcome one of my dearest friends. This person has changed my life in so many ways. They really have brought a lot of joy to it. I love talking to other intellectuals. I mean, not to make any bold claims here, but uh, I like talking to people who are intelligent when it comes to film. And this person is no exception. Uh, he's wonderful and he's been very supportive in my podcasting journey. Please welcome Chris Nell. Hello, Erin. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I mean, you've done my show a couple of times and to see the roles reversed is quite refreshing and well done on your podcast on all your success. Great entertainment. Thank you so much. Now we talked about movies that we wanted to do on the show together and you chose this one and I... Would love to know what is your background with... Okay, so here's a funny story. I cannot pronounce the word werewolf. I heard I... You, that L is silent. I, I don't... Your accent. That was <laughs> oh, that's so perfect. Yes, the L is indeed silent when it comes to me. Um, so yes, <laughs> what made you choose American Werewolf in London? <laughs> Well, bigger was his name Oh, Well done on the second try. You know what? I think in many ways, an American werewolf in London is a pioneering picture. A little bit of a background on that. If you look at the way it was shot at the time, it was a lot more guerrilla filmmaking than it was in the 70s. B-movies really got, a, got kicked up a notch. Now, there were two prominent independent movie uh, studios that sprung to life in 1975 and 1980, respectively. One was Polygram Pictures, the other one was Avcal Embassy. Avcal Embassy had just seen success the year before with the release of Scanners, directed by David Cronenberg, and gave a highlight to, of course, Michael Ironside, who would become Mr. Big Bad in films like Free Willy, he played uh, Jester in Top Gun, and a whole bunch of other pictures. He's got a wonderful, wonderful voice that was used to great effect in Splinter Cell. And Polygram was an international co-production between, a co-production house, I should say, between the British and the Americans. Now, here is where the six degrees of separation comes full circle. John Landis, who had seen success with, namely, Animal House by the National Lampoon of Kentucky Fried Movie, had written the script for American Werewolf as far back as at the age of 21. Rick Baker helped him with his first feature called Schlock, which was like a King Kong knockoff. An American Werewolf in London was his very first big picture. He struggled to get it financed because at that time, horror and comedy weren't exactly bedfellows. And when he eventually got the financing together, no one expected that it would be the runaway success that it would be. It got a limited run in a couple of theaters. In fact, it was the limited run which had a lot of people talking, so it spread word of mouth, and ultimately it was elevated to A houses. Now, that's the first highlight I want to bring up. The second highlight was, whilst American Werewolf was in pre-production, John was still struggling to get the financing together. Uh, Joe Dante comes along, and he presents the script for The Howling. Rick Baker, 
Monster Maker, as he would become known in later years, was offered the script for American Werewolf. But until such a time that it went into full-on production, Rick had nowhere else to go. So off he goes to Joe Dante on the Howling set and creates a wonderful, wonderful creature feature for him. But then when John had heard Rick went over to the Howling set with Joe Dante, all of a sudden, magically, swish, uh, shish, boom, bar, the financing came together and American Werewolf went into pre-production. So ultimately what would happen in the end is Rick would return to American Werewolf, leaving his apprentice, one Rob Bottin, on The Howling to create a creative feature. And both films were released in the very same year and they've become very big cult classics. The only exception, though, is Rick would win the Oscar for Best uh, Character Makeup. And Rob, well, he would carry on a little bit while before he would get similar effect with RoboCop. Wow. That is so awesome. I love it. I love it when my guests come prepared. I love it when anyone comes on and like brings knowledge, you know, like, oh, huge oh, weight off my shoulders. Of yeah, no, it's that's fantastic. Of the spear. But no. it, was, it wasn't an easy film to make because I read when uh, there's a new special edition that just came out, wonderful, wonderful reprint in full color that uh, David Norton and Griffin Dunn were basically trying to see how they could get their foot into the business on the big screen. David, of course, we know as the spokesman for Dr. Pepper and Griffin Dunn was basically just plotting about trying to see how he could make ends meet. It would be John who would fought for them because he had the same recipe of using new faces in Animal House. I'll name names like Tim Matheson, Peter Riegert, um, the only known face, oh, of course, Bruce McGill, uh, who would become a favorite of Michael Mann. And the only veteran face that he had used in Animal House was the late John Vernon. Because Animal House had been a success using new faces, Polly Grant would put up the funding to allow him to use new faces for American Werewolf. The problem was is it affected both David and Griffin's career so negatively. Why? Because they looked like high school kids, first and foremost. And secondly, Griffin Dunn actually got so claustrophobic and literally down in the dumps when Rick would put uh, the makeup on him after seeing uh, where he's mauled to death by the werewolf. He comes back as a sort of a zombie ghost apparition. And you can see the skin dangling all over the place. It's a very, oh, very yeah. gory movie. It's very gory. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, apparently a conversation erupted where Griffin started crying in the, in the makeup and Rick is, is stopping and said, listen, listen, why are you so upset? He said, look at me, man. I look like a half-dead corpse. I can't bring my parents to this. And as it would turn out, when... Um, American Werewolf had just hit the, the cinemas. Griffin brought his parents and they left halfway through the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, that's fabulous. I, I'm a huge Griffin Dunn fan. I didn't really know until researching for this that this was his first feature. Like it was I, his first feature, yeah. I'm, I always thought of him as just being... Uh, because he's Dominic Dunn's son, I always thought of oh, yes. him as just being in the industry. I, I didn't ever mm. think of him as, you know, quote, having a start, you know. Um, and then David Naughton, I knew from, obviously, I knew because, you know, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, everyone's a pepper. <laughs> uh, I, knew, I knew because of that, but I also knew him because of a little tiny film 
that came out in the 80s called Midnight Madness. <clears throat> Which I haven't seen. I'm ashamed to say there's a hole in my education. It's a cute movie. It's kind of it was it was uh, Disney's attempt to try to reach the teenage audience is what the they're because they didn't have it. No, they <laughs> they didn't. stopped at Herbie and then they just couldn't get any, you know, they, they couldn't get that demographic. And so they hired two very early 20s screenwriters to write this cross between it's a mad, mad, mad world and mm-hmm. animal house but a non-sexual non-nude <laughs> non-inappropriate Which they actually gotten right in the 70s with the computer wore tennis shoes and the strongest right. man on earth exactly so they so they hired them to come and make this movie and they hired david naughton out of the fact that he had done you know he had done the i'm a pepper thing but he had also um had a hit with making it uh, which was used in the Meatballs movie. So, you know, it's oh, all yes. connected, right? Um, Very much. So so that's where I knew David Naughton from. And my, I watched this movie for the very first time with my mother like a week ago. And she recognized Ginny Agutter um, oh, yes. from uh, uh, Call the Midwife. Apparently she oh, yes. on that show. So, because I recognize a bunch of comedies, I think she wasn't the nanny in the nineties. I'm speaking on a correction. I I re- I recognized her from Logan's Run. Logan's Run, Logan's Run. Yeah, you know, that's, that's where I, I knew her from. And I think one of the reasons that I love this movie is because the cast is very small and very small. Um, but but also everyone shines in it. You know, very much so. And I'll tell you why. John, I think, hasn't gotten the full credit. He and and Harold Ramis, I don't think, have gotten the credit of being able to identify talent that they could use. Sorry, let me just rephrase that. John knew talent. And I think that's why he insisted on carrying on new faces. And I'll tell you also... What I don't think the actors and actresses realized is that they would actually become household names on the cult circuit. We've spoken about this as well, you and I in private conversation. And especially with Jenny Agatha and especially with John Woodvine, who had become a very, very uh, famous British uh, face on British television in shows like Cold It's. I don't know if you know the name, but there was a TV show that uh, David McCallum did after Man from Uncle called Sapphire and Steel, which he also appeared in. And a whole bunch of British films, Sol Madrid, he also did with um, with David McCallum. And recently as well in the 90s, I've only discovered this this morning, as a matter of fact, there, and you can find him on YouTube, there's an American werewolf in London radio play that aired on the BBC. Oh, that is awesome. With, with Jenny Agatha and John Woodvine, but <clears throat> sans... Uh, David Norton and Griffin Dunn, sadly, Sad. because it's a Brit production. So. Right, it's a Brit, it's a UK production. So yeah, okay. Wow. And if you look at the movie as well, it's so full of in jokes because where's the setting in London? London in the sixties and seventies was the home to Hammer Studios that created all those um, Frankenstein movies and the Dracula movies with uh, Sir Christopher Lee and and Peter Cushing. And so there's the first in joke. At the very beginning, when they're dropped off in the middle of the highlands and they walk over to the pub, there's a pub called the Slaughtered Lamb. Slaughtered what Lamb. Use... <laughs> what do they use as the 
uh, I count for this part, a werewolf's head on a pike. Right. <laughs> exactly. It, it has a very, it, it honestly has a very universal horror feel to it. it very, 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 very much a monster movie, which is, it's interesting because I am not the biggest monster movie person um when it comes to horror like i've i've said i have a future episode coming up where i said you know zombies are my least favorite type of horror oh um, and, and then i think monsters are right underneath it um but <clears throat> after seeing this movie i changed my mind completely because i realized that a lot of these monster movies were created with a lot of um a lot of reading between the lines because it's Very not so. really about a monster. It, it's about that which is foreign, different, um, you know, uh, you know, different than what other people perceive as normal, right? Abnormal, um, ostracized. Uh, and, and then Very when so. <clears throat> when I watched it with that lens, it's completely different to me now, you know. <clears throat> Roger Corman actually had a, a theory on this. Whenever he made horror films, Roger Corman, of course, we know is the B-movie king, 92 years of age and still cranking them out with 450 credits under his belt. Love him. He had a theory. Whenever he made a horror film with either Vincent Price, Bagel, Rathbone, or um, Boris Karloff, whenever there would be a moment of fright in one of those pictures, he would notice that some of the audiences would begin to chuckle in order to ease the adrenaline from that moment. Especially, uh, there's a picture that he did with Ray Land, which focused on a rocking horse when he had, was younger and had created some sort of psychological imbalance. There's a shot where he walks into the bedroom, which is naturally darkened, and there's a rocking horse mounted on the wall. Yeah. And the moment that he walks inside, the camera zooms in on the rocking horse, which is obviously st stuck still. But just that quick moment, zooming into the camera at the very moment that the orchestration kicks into high gear, the audience would scream, but they would howl of laughter. Here comes John Landis with this experimental script that no commercial entity wants to touch. And of course, it takes an independent production house to bring it into fruition. And guess what happens afterwards in the 80s? More and more horror comedies start coming to light where people would laugh, be disgusted, or rather be open-minded. That's why I say as well, American Werewolf is a pioneering piece of filmmaking. Look, it's got the crappiest ending, I must admit. Oh, uh, my heart. I actually began to cry. Let's not spoil it for the audience. I know, to right, right. To see the movie. But, um, I mean, to talk about the horror comedy example, uh, Two examples I want to mention, which is my favorite in the film, is, as I mentioned, Griffin Dunn's character gets killed and he starts coming back as this sort of walking dead zombie. And at each stage, he gets more and more decayed. And that degree of makeup, I can't even think how much Rick must have sweated to create those designs. Now, the last second to last time that Griffin appears with him there in the theater, we won't mention which one, and they start having a monotonous... <laughs> conversation and David transforms into a quadruped werewolf. Now, normally a werewolf is a biped, but John's specific instructions was he wanted a quadruped. 
okay, could you explain that to me? Because I did notice that he does not look like the traditional, I mean, for God's sakes, like Silver Bullet's werewolf basically looks like a bear on crack. <laughs> it's not a good werewolf. It just isn't. But I was actually com- hoping you would be, you oh, would be more sympathetic of Silver Bullet because, but of course, it's Gary great, Ducey's in it. I, I love, but I still love Silver Bullet because I, I it's one of those first horror films that I saw when I was real little and I was sure. just mortified by it. You know, you had the severed head by the train tracks and the girl Goodness. who was pregnant, who gets just slaughtered in her bed. David transforms, of course, uh, into this uh, quadruped and causes a fracas on Piccadilly Circus in London. The moment he roams the streets, everyone is scattering. Here's a nice little bit of trivia for you. The scene where the double-decker bus makes that quick swerve. Yes. The driver of the bus is no one else but second unit director Vic Armstrong, who did a lot of the 007s of Piers Brosnan. Oh, wow. That? And That's that. And the moment awesome. that the double-decker bus goes T-bones in the middle of the street, here comes a sedan, whack the double-decker, out goes a passenger onto oh. the street, a car comes, drives the passenger over, Another car comes, hits a pedestrian about to mug a granny. The granny goes through a glass pane window. It's pandemonium. <laughs> but it's so, it's such a gory scene. But I'm laughing my head off. My mother. Oh, yeah. She, she says, What are you laughing at? I said, No, mom, you, you don't want to see. You don't want to see. Go back to bed. <laughs> my my mom had quite a few laughs with this movie like she really it's a hilarious film especially the usage of music in this movie oh Um, bobby vinton credence clearwater revival revival especially yeah when the when he's basically waiting to have his transformation like he's waiting to turn and they play ccr's bad moon rising it's like that is genius and i will say that from what I remember, John Landis knows how to put the right song with the right scene. And let me also take it a step further. Look at the titles of the song. Oh, yeah. Moon Dance. Moon. Blue Moon. moon Bad Moon Rising. Right. Oh, Moon. We were, talk- <laughs> we were talking about Silver Bullet. This was also a trick that John pioneered because his instructions to Rick was the following. He doesn't want to show the werewolf completely. It might be just a fraction of a second. Smart uh, theory because he wanted to promote a jump scare, which he got right in many in many ways. John's uh, quick technique. Ah, However, okay. if you look at the transformation scene where uh, 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 David Norton's character transforms into the werewolf for the first time, mm-hmm. it's such a prolonged scene and it's painful to watch yes because you see the hands the fingers elongating which is actually a mechanism with latex foam on it and the fingers extend with robotic mechanisms and gradually where the hair grows more and more on david's back you start to cringe and you start to pull inside because you can you can physically see the pain that david is going through as he's transforming into this beast but it was a succession of 20 shots that they shot in six hours that was all spliced together because they consistently had to paste hair on uh, David's back because he was hairless at the time. Mm. Now, I mentioned to you, you're going to enjoy this. 
American Wolf in London gave Rick his very first Oscar. In fact, it was the first time that the Academy Award for Best Original Makeup, the category was just created. Amazing. Big time. And Rick would win it on occasion seven more times being nominated out of 11. Wow. In 2005, oh yeah, he holds the record. I'm surprised he's not in, uh, in the Guinness World Book of Records for most Oscar wins for Best Makeup. That's, that's what made me want to go back into the art field. That's amazing. Um, in 2005, Wes Craven gets the idea to make a werewolf movie called Cursed. And uh, yes, I can see that look on your face. <laughs> I, I I saw that in the theater and my husband at the time said, hey, I wonder if that guy with the beard is going to end up being the werewolf. And I was like, oh, no. Yes. Yes. The guy with the beard. And it looks like a really, really overpriced computer graphic. Ah. (laughs) It doesn't look as surreal as American Werewolf. No. But it's, it's humor. And it nearly cost Wes's relationship with Rick because he wanted Rick so badly on the picture, but... The thing with Rick is he has a vision. And if he wants to bring a vision to fruition, you need to support him. And I mean, after all, he started Cinevision Studios back in 81, which was the place to go to before uh, Greg Nicotero, I hope I'm getting the names right, Berger and Kurtzman. Yep, <clears throat> Who would, who would uh, more or less take over that niche after Rick retired back in 2015, I think it was. Now, in any event, when Kurst came around, it really soured Rick's artistic vision. But Rick is also the record keeper for making the most realistic werewolf movies. American Werewolf is one, Cursed is two, and he would win the Oscar again for a 2010 film called The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. Now, the thing is, is with a werewolf, it's a person who adopts the characteristics of a wolf. So they still retain some of the anatomy, meaning on two legs, but they're entirely animalistic. Why John wanted a quadruped, I don't know. But whatever the suggestion, Rick made it work. And I'd like to think it's because of the snarling face where Mm -hmm. you know you're going to get eaten up and it's modeled after David's facial characteristics, which gave it a much more realistic approach, I'd like to think. Absolutely. I feel like that is a it's just a whole other type of creature. You know what I mean? Like in that movie in general, it's very scary to see it. Uh, even time. though, you know, you know, that this is part of David Naughton, you know, but at the same time, you're like, oh my God, that thing is going to rip that person apart. And what I love about this film is that there are so many moments of levity that are almost right before the moments of carnage or right after. <laughs> which, oh, yes. <laughs> which just um which just makes it it's just amazing. Like you've got the, you know, Bad Moon Rising starts playing and we're all, you know, giddy and nostalgic and oh that's funny and ha ha ha. And then this transformation happens and you are just, you know, you're you're pained, you're uncomfortable, you're watching this mm. scene and then he just goes tearing ass out. He is he is gonna take over London all in one night, you know. He, well, there's and... one particular scene that if you are very squeamish or if you get claustrophobic, you may want to press the fast forward button. A businessman is on the subway 
Oh. Down in the in the Lincoln, or I almost said Lincoln Tunnel, uh, in the London Underground. And as he gets off the train, you hear the schnoz. But you also hear, if you listen carefully, a chicken. Yeah. A wolf and then a chicken. And then a chicken. It's very strange. There's these little, very, little very moments odd. where you're like, what? But I feel like Landis does that, though. I, I feel like another Landis movie that I love that everyone hates, but I'm okay with it, is um, Innocent Blood with Anne Parla and not Andy Garcia. Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh anthony lapalia thank you um oh anthony lapalia yeah. underrated australian actor and i love him oh my gosh and um and uh robert loja and and kim coates and so many people are in this movie and i absolutely adore it i mean everyone makes cameos in this thing like it's a it's a, <laughs> definitely a landis fest right um, right. but and it's about a vampire who basically just like just she goes around pittsburgh killing mobsters to feed <laughs> herself <laughs> and uh and there's a cop on her trail you know and and it's totally a landis movie because it has this unbelievable gore but then it is also genuinely funny and has a great soundtrack just complete just, just moment right exactly i mean the man knows what he's doing you know? big time and you don't see that in today's modern filmmaking and i think the reason why is number one the budget number yeah. two remember the people who supply the financing aren't actually creative types i'm a creative type i've been that my whole career i've butted heads with so many heads because when you tell them here's an idea that's going to make you money then they want to know when quickly can we make money and art takes time to digest, to build up hype. But if they do their jobs and zush up the marketing for when it comes to distribution, then the return on investment can be a lot more palpable. Are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then secondly, when it comes to the creative process, the higher-ups wants to stick their greasy little fingerprints on everything. And Rick said exactly the same thing when American Werewolf was busy in production. He had a completely different idea for the werewolf design. No, no, no. We have to do it this way. Mm. And unfortunately, until such a time that that hamster in the wheel sees a completely different shade, unfortunately, it's going to be a lot more difficult for tears to get films made. And on their own dime, of course, it takes the same amount of money to make a good movie as it does a bad movie <laughs> and vice versa. So... That is the difficulty with the creative process. There has to be that handsome middle where creativity meets commerce. And it can be done if the right people sit in the same room. Hmm. Now, have you ever had a chance to meet any of the actors in this film or any or Orlandis or anybody? No, I haven't. I haven't whatsoever. In fact, I wish I could. I really, really get to speak to American personalities, yourself included. I'm more of a connoisseur of American trade. Why? Because it raised me and I was American trained for <laughs> the uh, industry that I was involved with for many, many years. I did get to meet Landis and I met David Naughton. Um, and how I, are they in real life? Well, Landis is just what you think he is. He is silly and funny and, and a gentleman and very... Um, just jovial fun to talk fun to talk to we actually got into a conversation about 
my favorite comedy writer of all time is a, a gentleman by the name of Doug Kenny, who wrote Doug Kenny. What did he who, write? Oh, he wrote Animal House and he wrote Caddyshack and he wrote for the oh, National Lampoon. wrote them. They all Forgive well, me. well, no, no, no. That's actually partially true. Doug and Harold were 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 writing partners and oh, they were a writing team. And so Doug was one of the people who founded the National Lampoon. And oh, you're right. So Absolutely he right. So and he Michael wrote. Milken was also involved. Yes, exactly. So he wrote all of those. So when Hollywood came a calling and they said, you know, we want you to write, you know, this movie, he wrote Animal House, and you know they wanted and they wanted all the SNL people. Like Animal House originally was supposed to be John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Chevy and Chase. Dan Aykroyd. And Dan Aykroyd. And funny enough. Here's something else that I bet you didn't know. David and Griffin weren't exactly first choice for their roles. Oh, God. Polly Graham wanted John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, but they couldn't. They were busy working on Neighbors. Which is just, no. I think it would have worked. I don't think it would. I don't think it would (laughs) have. Well, I I cannot believe I am I am actually disagreeing with you, Chris. But well, we've disagreed on on something else before, and I, I accept that. But you know who you, who I think, and please make a make a accommodation and tell me what's your honest opinion. If I think it wouldn't have worked with Jim uh, or John, I mean Jim is his brother, <laughs> with either John Belushi or Dan Aykroyd, I think Tim Matheson and Peter Riegert would have yes. made a fine duo in that movie. Absolutely, I will co-sign that all day i think i absolutely think that i i love first of all i love love peter Riegert and i love tim matheson and i i think that very underrated actors their their work in animal house is just amazing um just no one could have taught them no, no absolutely and so when i met john landis that's a thing i talked about as i said i'm a huge doug kinney fan i've i've read the book that they wrote about him um do you have any autographs that you could autograph that have him in it and he was just so touched and he's like oh absolutely and he he you know he had like the one animal house photo that happened to have doug in it and was like i will sign this for you and we just you know we we had a really good conversation about that and then david naughton was just just charming you know just charming and sweet and a, a genuine nice guy and you know would sign anything was very excited that i knew about midnight madness you know <laughs> like, <laughs> wasn't there to get the american werewolf in london i was strictly there for midnight madness um you know so it was it was funny because he signed my copy of midnight madness and i think he wrote on my autograph i think he wrote like you're a pepper or something <laughs> it just was a good convention (laughs) well it just goes to show that the cult stars have been and always will be bigger than the stars because people remember them more and their interactions with them are far more better Mm -hmm. when the new generation comes along they will look at films of the 90s as a classic but i would like to think and just hear my theory on this when American Werewolf came about, it actually thrust guerrilla filmmaking into the spotlight and made it marketable. I would like to think now with a lot more com- commerce films that aren't getting the financing to be made, I think guerrilla filmmaking might see a second wind where they might be uh, upgraded 
to Airhouse Pictures, which could, I say big but, or big maybe, could give the opportunity to breed new star talent. Because right now, television is so oversaturated, you don't know what the hell you're watching anymore. No, there's a lot of it. Very much so. So I'd like to think that low but or guerrilla filmmaking, or more politically correct uh, phrasing, might see its second wind, where we can get good quality content on a guerrilla budget and ultimately see it in a place like the New Beverly or our shame, the Ziegfeld Theatre in New York sadly closed. So even in movie houses, because even James Cameron had said when Avatar 2 came out that he would like to see more faces in the cinema, which means there's going to be a lot more productions that need financing. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. I think with this movie, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the the screenplay for it is so smart and very smart written i love the way that the characters are written too um because first of all you have the you you have the jack and david so you you have david naughton and uh griffin dunn's characters who are best friends who have known each other since they were probably in grade school i believe and they you know all but finish each other's sentences <laughs> as they as they travel and and but they have very honestly intelligent conversations and and they seem like oh they yes i'm genuinely... just gonna boink the other person's yeah girlfriend. that's important it's vicky what was her name yeah what was uh, yeah Jenny or linda i think something like that yeah it's was, it was, it was like well you can't something like that you can't have sex with her she's a trash human you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like yes but she has a nice body very 80s um and but, surprisingly enough there was a lot of improvisation which they did for which, kicks and giggles which, which john is used fun. in the final cut. yeah yeah which again you can kind of tell. john's good eye for talent but you're right it's it's very very smartly written and if you're writing a script and i mean this has been your forte for many a year location has to be written in the script as well mm. so i yes. think as well it's a very minimalist script setting wise. Yes. But if we're talking dialogue wise, it's very, very wordy. It's full mm-hmm. of pop culture references. Oh, yeah. And I think what makes it work well again is the energy that's been written into the script because it's more testosterone laden. Oh, yeah. This is a, a dick fest. No, this is, this is definitely very, um, you know, big dick energy type of a movie where there's just a lot of guys and there's maybe there's there's Jenny Agutter and then there's like her nurse friend and that's it <laughs> as that's far it. as women are concerned plus the the innkeepers uh the the woman who not I don't know if she owns oh, the she's slaughtered a lamb snotty bitch but she is such a snotty bitch whatever she is right to <laughs> whoever whoever runs the slaughtered lamb uh and that's kind of it you know the rest of it is very it's it is very male centric however I will say this as somebody who has seen one too many Eli Roth movies we'll just say that um Guilty. this this film as a woman watching it, it does not make me cringe. It does not make me uncomfortable to be around these mm. characters, right? Absolutely. Whereas Hostile or Hostile Two or any or or Cabin Fever, any of those or movies, Hostile Three, yeah, but that, uh, we don't talk about that. But like, 
but like you have these movies and they are so bro heavy they are so just you know dick 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 um and but they're but they but they physically make me uncomfortable like they just make me just be like oh i would never hang out with these guys these guys are horrible however that being said american werewolf in london i would be like yeah i'd take david not home sure don't know him so i think i think john wrote it specifically for those two to be like the the chap you meet down the street the one mm-hmm. that you would obviously see his dog walking by your house the one who comes from a country moment apple pie sort of background the yeah. kind of boy that you would trust your daughter to absolutely adorable totally adorable and i mean i i love that the jenny agatha character i love that she takes him home and then she has this amazing sex positive message which is look <laughs> i've slept with like five people and two of them are one night stands and i don't bring american men home to my flat you know, and, uh, and then they bonk in the shower. Right. It's like, but I'm going to sleep with you because there's one bed. And this is on like Donkey Kong. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> and David can't believe his luck. I know. He's like, I, I, uh, cue Van Morrison. Yes. I, I am okay with all of the things. I, I understand your demands and I accept it. And, 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 and he then, gives it to her. Yeah. He gives it to her. Several Six times. ways to Sunday. Yeah, there's a several times shower, and then a bed, and then I'm and sure something happens the next day. Absolutely, I was like, "Good for you, John Landis. Good for you <laughs> putting that in there for us ladies." But you've got to you've got to give the man props as well. I mean, if you look at, at Andy Sedaris, who is more day of a night's difference than John Landis. Let's be, oh, let's be honest. Yeah, he could have just made skin flicks for the rest of his career. Um, there's also an element of class because with a horror film, it appears that the recipe has to be there has to be an essence of skin. You mentioned Hostel as well. Mm. Um, yeah, not my not my top favorite film, but it, I enjoyed it for what it was worth. Horror films don't necessarily have to be so gratuitous when it comes to the skin scenes. No. John did his with class. Very. There's a time and a place for everything in a movie. Um, but it's all basically down to what is the message that you're trying to convey, and especially in a in a in a, in a horror comedy setting, which in itself, I say in inverted commas, silly, it's really 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 watered down. I read a rumor somewhere that that sex scene was supposed to be more longer, but the censors had it cut toned down in order to wow. secure a better rating. And apparently as well, oh, yes, you're right. Uh, I'm right when I'm saying this. After they have their night of passion together, David goes and sits down. And then, of course, Jack appears in front of him, a lot more decayed. Apparently, there was supposed to be a scene where he starts eating toast, Jack's character. Right. And, and it comes out of his neck. His, yeah. Out of his neck. <laughs> that also had to be cut. Something on both occasions that... Uh, uh, John had great, great regret about. But, right. I mean, Damn you, Jack Valenti. Damn yeah, let's you. Not go there. So, yeah. So the film makes the most of itself as far as like it. it it's only an 80 minute movie. And it like, could have been two hours. It could have been 
two hours, but they pack so much into that 80 minutes, you know, and you've got kind of, you know, some cheeky sort of comedy with the, you know, adult theater. Um, uh, and, and also the, supposed to say that. And the adult movie in the background, which is not a real You're movie. You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> That's why. See you next Wednesday. Um, yeah, it's it's just funny. And then I love that they're like having sex and then that guy comes in and he goes, you know, he's like, you're not supposed to be here. And he's like, I don't know who you are. And then he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And walks out. I lost it. I was laughing so hard at that. <laughs> I was like, well, it's surprising now that you mentioned the adult theater. John, uh, not John, Joe Dante actually copied that for The Howling. Oh, yeah. If you, it's in The if Howling. You've seen The Howling. Yep. Uh, at the very beginning where uh, Dee Wallace walks into a theater, you don't actually get to see uh, the action <laughs> because um, Dee is being taunted by Robert Picardo and he actually, Joe actually used a very smart camera maneuver to give an aerospace view of Dee's face. And as Picardo stands in silhouette, busy changing. And <laughs> to this day, the, that, that's the one thing that actually boggles me is why did I have to put an adult movie <laughs> reference in a horror film? I wasn't offended. I was just like, this is weird. You know, my mom was, my, I'm watching this with my mom, but for God's sakes, I watched Don't Look Now with my mom. And oh, that's a terrible movie. To watch with your mother? No, it's oh, horrible. Yes. Oh, it's she terrible. got up. She got up like during the, you know, Donald Sutherland seven minute sex scene. And she was like, I'm going to go walk the dog. Like she left, yeah. but fun yeah. fact, we were watching uh, Dress to Kill, which she loves, right? My boyfriend has never seen Dress to Kill. So he's on one couch. I'm on another couch. My mom's on a couch and we're watching Dress to Kill. And that scene comes on. Oh, dear. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know, just like that oh. realization of, oh, this is the this is Angie Dickinson's masturbation scene. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> And my mother has no reaction to it. My boyfriend literally crawled inside of his hoodie. Oh, my stars. Because he was mortified. And my mother's oh like, oh, my. this is nothing compared to the stuff you guys watch. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm well, like, I, can... I, I know. So, so yes, exactly. So when we watched this, I was kind of like, uh-oh. But she absolutely adored it and it was kind of funny because during the sex scene she's like i really love this song <laughs> <laughs> well i can relate to that experience i um, like moon dance and i was like good mom good <laughs> i really hope this scene ends quickly because i am this is not good well there's only so many degrees of separation and we we're talking earlier on about the werewolf transformation while moon dance is busy playing i'll also take you to the scene in american psycho where uh, Christian Bale gets Jared Leto schnockered, takes him to his, uh, to his apartment, plays Huey Lewis in the <laughs> news, and then the next moment takes a, 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 a fire axe, chops into pieces, sits down, and has a Cuban cigar. It makes How me laugh because it's such a, it's <laughs> the movie itself has, and this is, I will tell you this, like, I feel there are moments in American Psycho 
that are genuinely funny and then there's moments that are genuinely uncomfortable um which which i feel like it's that's a great movie because if i can feel both of those feelings in one film i'm like cool you know i mean there's just something funny about how he's just sitting there like looking at he's drunk he can't do anything and then all of a sudden christian bale pops up behind him and goes hey paul and just swaps it with the with the axe it's like that's awesome and i mean 80s music is playing in the background it's just just bananas i will tell you this that that sex scene ruined phil collins studio for me for the rest of my life i'm sure it did because it was not i never play want to hear that song as long as i live it could have been worse they could have played genesis's i can't dance oh god oh god (laughs) or something i mean it's just really ridiculous but but i think it's a testament bringing it back to um you know landis and american werewolf it's a testament to the usage of music to evoke emotion to evoke memory um and then kind of turning it on its head and a good example of this is the ending of this movie which i'm not going to give away no i'm not going to give away the ending i'm not going to give away the ending but that smash cut with brilliant that song is fantastic it's just fantastic fantastic segue because you're you're in this moment of sadness and you're like, oh God. And then bomb 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 and you're like, okay, I just can't. Yeah, you're just like I and then you laugh because you can't help but laugh. But as you quite rightly say, those as they say in comedy, the punchlines of the Milton that premise happens on the most unexpected places. First you are completely bitter and then you start laughing. And that talent, I would personally put at Landis' door. Look, kudos to him for experimenting with a genre like that, because no one else had done it before, to such an extent. But I would like to think that he is the pioneer of the horror comedy genre. Absolutely. And, not, and I would like to make another reference to the ending, because you can agree with me, and I'm, we're not going to give details away, ladies and gentlemen, don't worry. <laughs> but it ties in with the Piccadilly Circus Massacre, your heart actually pounds in your chest mm-hmm. whilst that scene is busy playing. Here comes Jenny Agatha, and what happens then? Your heart becomes more softer, so the adrenaline starts to decrease and decrease and decrease. The ending happens, your heart sinks. The credits start to roll with Bobby Vinton, the adrenaline goes up again. That is a testament to the writing and producing skills of John Landis. Cut and dry. I wish that I had had a chance to see it in the theater. Um, I, I oh, feel the experience. Oh, I feel like it would have been just laughter and screaming and but you know what I mean, like it what like it was on the couch, you know, like a week ago, you know, <laughs> where imagine Griff and Dunn comes sitting right next to you in the zombie makeup while you're watching the right, film and the just movie, talking movie to house. you randomly, just talking to you, you know? randomly. I I thought he did such a great job with it. I think um there are there are some people and this is a theory and I don't know if you've heard this theory and I'm going to throw it out there and if you don't like it you can throw it right back. But there's a theory which is that David was never really in love with nurse fuck what is her name? <laughs> I keep saying Jenny Agatha Alex. Uh, was never really in love with Nurse Alex, 
he was always in love with Jack. And at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, when, um, when, uh, when David does what he does, he's doing it so he can go be with Jack again. Well, now that you mention it in such a, a highlight, I can't say I denounce that because you can see that the bromance is very, very prevalent. Yeah. I heard a rumor in, in, in reverse that David was actually in love with Alex Price in real life. He built a crush on her. Because, oh, you mean, oh, David Naughton fell in love with uh, Jenny uh-huh. Agutter. Oh, well, how can uh-huh. you not? I mean, she's a gorgeous woman. All English wow. women are beautiful. Beautiful. Um, because he saw her in Ecuse, the play that had been made into a movie by um, Sidney Lamette. Mm. But the thing is, is, and I may be wrong on this, either Jenny had done the stage tradition of Ecuse or she had done the movie. But he fell in love with one of the versions and he said, well, well, she said, how can he, being David, have a crush on her, being Jenny, when she only appeared in the one medium version of the production, not the other? So it was all a fantasy in his mind. Oh, God. But you can't deny the chemistry there as well. But the way that you said it earlier on, you you really have to have an open mind to come across that because, I mean, he does die. Oh, damn, did I just give away the ending? <laughs> <laughs> Folks, there will be spoilers. He does die a tragic death, a hero's death, I'd like to think. A hero's death, yeah. Uh, to go and join David. And even in the conversation scenes where Jack is a undead creature, you can see a good combination of terror mixed with regret in David's oh, face. He has, I mean, he he absolutely has survivor's guilt. You know, David has that survivor's guilt of the fact that Jack, you know, Jack was mauled to death by random werewolf guy. And um and and now and and now he's in limbo and he can't mm. go to heaven because he's stuck and and he can't go until david decides that he's gonna just off himself Die. in all these different you know and so uh yeah i it, there's just a lot of theories of like there one theory was that oh he's when he lunges he's lunging to attack her and then the other is that he's just giving his life like that he's going oh. to that he lunges so he can just that's it like a suicide by cop absolutely suicide by cop that's exactly what I, <laughs> that's exactly what i think and when i heard that theory i actually that made more sense to me like oh. i didn't think he was going to attack her i thought he was just like no i'm i, I know what i have to do in this situation like i have to agree with you i have to agree with you because there's a moment when alex comes toward david in his wolf form and you see David, he's um, he's ready to to, mm-hmm. to kill. He's got no more trace of his humanity. But it's almost as if Jenny gives him his humanity back. And he comes to realize that if he stays in his werewolf form, they eventually go into a much more deeper relationship. He's going to kill her. Yeah. Like and Jack his, died. And his eyes and he doesn't want to soften. And he doesn't want to 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 put her through that. And as you quite rightly say, the eyes soften. So it was either a case of he wanted to attack it to change her into a werewolf so that they could be together. Oh, ah, damn. Bringing knowledge, Chris. I didn't even think about that. It's I'm just throwing it out there. Just Great throwing it out there. theory. Or it would be a fact of I can't live like this knowing that the woman that I love is going to die and I'm going to go through life 
for the rest of my life as quintessentially an immortal before someone kills me with silver to let me do the honorable thing. Before more lives are lost, especially the one that I love, let the cops kill me. Let me rather be a blank memory. Right. See? Oh, see? I give you this credit as well, Erin. I mean, you have effectually awakened an appetite in me for lower budget films and cult films. Oh, that makes me happy. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's not just cheap entertainment. There's actually a lot of art involved with it. That's awesome. That's the thing is you have to have something to back that up. And a lot of the films that I choose to be on my show have some sort of a backup on there, whether it's the soundtrack that I absolutely adore and can't stop talking about, or it's one performance or two, or it's the scenery or it's the D it's, it's the photography, whatever it is. Oh yeah. Sure, you know, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that I put on the show that, that, that there are moments where I'm like, eh, it's not a good movie, but you know, that it does have these redeeming qualities here, you know, um, is, is there any show a podcast or person that you would like to shout out tonight? Of course. I would just like to say, Aaron Dorn, congratulations on the Manic Movie Podcast. I mean, you've you've carved a great niche for yourself, and I mean it. I'm not saying it just because I've been a guest. I think really you could be the not just the <clears throat> excuse me, the next Leonard Moulton. I think you're going to become the very first Aaron Dorn oh. of your era. You're a very, very talented monologist. You're extremely knowledgeable in your subject matter and i know they say it takes three to five years but may you become more successful uh, quicker than three years i hope that you get invited to do live conventions and you can do live conventional podcasts because there's no one else like you and the more the quicker that you own that the quicker that you accept that and practice that you're in for a you're in for a treat Thank you. You're in for a treat, my friend. And it's a pleasure and a privilege to know you always. That is so sweet. That is so sweet. I have a shout out to give tonight. Uh, My buddy Diallo Jackson and his buddy Jamie Smith have started a podcast called Galactica Actually. Like Love Actually, right? Galactica Actually, which is a travel and a rewatch through Battlestar Galactica, the 2003 sci-fi series. So I already started listening and it's fabulous and it's engaging and it's interesting and it's fun. So you can find them wherever podcasts are available, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to find the show, i.e. our show, Bannock Movie Monday, uh, we are on Instagram and that's the best way to get me (laughs) is on Instagram. Manic Movie Monday podcast on Instagram. And I always write you people back because I love my fans. You can find me on Instagram at Chris Snell Media. Hook up with me. Take a look at some of the stuff that I have on offer. Let's grow together. It's going to be fun. It's wonderful. All right. Um, Well, you guys can find us every other Monday on Spotify. Stay manic, my lovelies. Bye-bye now.